listening to Fidget, a BFRB podcast. Welcome back to Fidget. We're super excited to have you listening today. Yes, and our guest today is someone who uh, she started the Serendipity Project and now has the Instagram, the Body Focus Mama, uh, Sarah. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Hey, thank you. Excited to be here with you guys. <laughs> Where are you joining us in from today? I am currently in Brooklyn, New York, in the United <laughs> States. I know we're on different time zones, all three of us. We managed somehow. <laughs> yeah, we, we figured it out. Um, cool. Yeah, Brooklyn. That's exciting. Um, is it cold there right now? It's pretty cold, which is not my thing. <laughs> Are you from Brooklyn? <laughs> no, I'm from upstate New York, uh, Saratoga Springs. Yeah, my husband's from here, so. Cool. I actually grew up in New York. Um, in, uh, oh, you did? Where? Hawthorne. Hawthorne, New York. It's uh, oh, a really awesome. small suburb. I don't know if people know about it, but I used to go into town on the train. I do remember that. I was like four. <laughs> so that's all I go. Is that what you call New York City, the, the town? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> the place where you, use, where you use the train. There was really good pizza. I remember my favorite kind of pizza was macaroni pizza. <laughs> I actually passed out on top. Yeah. Never found that anywhere else but New York. Yeah. I think there's a lot of things you'll only find in New York. <laughs> it's a special place. Anyways, um, Sarah, you reached out to us through Instagram, and it was really great. We're super glad to have you here. Do you want to share a little bit about what your page is all about? Sure. So I started um, in college a couple of years ago was when I became public about my BFRBs, and I wanted to do something because I had such a great response um, by friends and family and people who I didn't know. And I immediately wanted to do something else to promote awareness, um, knowing that a lot of people don't know about these issues. So I decided to start a Facebook group at the time was called the Serendipity Project, um, mostly because I love the word serendipity and what it means. And it was also one of my nicknames as a child. And I thought that was so fitting. And originally it was more of an art project because I had a couple of close friends who um, were artists and uh, graphic designers and photographers. And so I was using that, you know, with their help to kind of document my progress um, with my hair growth and the hair loss, as well as um, the damage on my skin uh, to show what it really looked like in, a, in the daily life, especially with college. Um, and that's what it originally was. Then when I went into my master's program a couple of years later, I kind of um, took a step back and got a little overwhelmed with having myself so much out there all the time. And it, I find it to be really draining at times. And on top of that, I just couldn't keep up with my master's program and um, basically doing much else. So <laughs> I took the page down. Um, I had written a lot of articles for a site called The Mighty, which is a mental health awareness site. And I actually asked them to take all of my articles down. Um, and they did that. And basically I just, you know, put myself on mute for a while and I came back recently. I just felt that urge to get back into the realm of advocacy again, um, and use my voice. And I wanted something new and, and relevant to what I'm going through right now. And, you know, I thought there's not a whole lot um, out there right now as far as awareness and representation of what it's like to go through motherhood with a BFRB. And I know one of my fears my whole life as a child even was thinking when I have kids one day, what is it going to be like to be a mom? How are they going to look at me? And are they going to develop a BFRB? So I now have the body focused mama on Facebook and Instagram. And that's basically to promote awareness of um, basically mental health in general, honestly, and, and being a mom, it's a, it's a lot of different things. I don't like to put it in too much of a, a box. Um, and I also am starting to write more through WordPress, uh, more like a blog type thing. And 
hopefully I'll get back into writing for the mighty sometime too, but that's where I'm at right now. I'm trying not to put too much pressure on myself. Wow. Yeah. Cause that, that's a lot of things. <laughs> I was going to ask. So uh, I, it sounds like, you know, you, you stepped away from the serendipity project for a bit, like you were a little burnt out or, or something like you were just constantly advocating. Is there, um, you know, kind of your, your return to the advocacy space is there, um, I don't know, like what lessons learned are you, not lessons learned, that sounds like a very darky way to put it, but like, um, what, what are you going to do this time around? Key findings. No, I think, I think there definitely were lessons learned. Yeah, key findings of my study. No, there, there definitely were lessons learned. I mean, I think with a lot of things that I do, for example, I'm, um, my focus in academics is clinical psychology. I have my master's in clinical psychology. I'm in the process of um, interviewing for doctoral programs. And same thing with the work that I do. Um, Same thing with the advocacy and the work that I do is that I think it's really easy to dive so deep into it that you don't realize how much of yourself you're giving. And especially when you're passionate about what you do. And of course I'm passionate about raising awareness for BFRBs and helping people who reach out to me. Um, And I think in order to do that, I, I feel the need to be transparent and I want to be transparent and tell my story and tell the things that are sad and, and painful, the things, you know, as a child growing up, what it was like, but um, doing that all the time is, really difficult. You might not notice it at the time. Like I might write something, write an article or share a story, share a picture um, that's very vulnerable and raw. And it might not bother me in the moment, but later on, you know, I see it over and over again. And people, even with the nice things that in supportive things that people say, it's just a constant reminder of something that like many other people, I don't want to remember it, you know, in my childhood. Mm. So I think going forward, to more answer your question, going forward, I'm going to stay more in touch with myself and more mindful about that. And I'm not pressuring myself. I still feel anxiety sometimes about like, oh, I didn't post something in a couple of days. You know, I need to keep my page relevant and and be reaching out and being active. And I think that's just more of a social media anxiety. And I'm trying not to feed into that because I don't want it to become something that's unhealthy or um, overwhelming for me this time around. Mm-hmm. That's so relatable. When we started the Fidget Podcast social media, I got so anxious about it. Like I didn't even realize I was anxious. I, it felt like excitement, which I think is a very similar feeling for me. But it was like all of a sudden I just kept thinking of all the things we should put on there and all the people we should follow. And it got to the point where I was letting it become way too much of a of a focus point, which is, you know, part of the reason why I personally try to avoid social media for my own uh, for my own life. But then for Fidget, I was like, oh, but I we need to do this. We need to get the word out. And all of a sudden it just became so much more of a of a burden. And so now we have the rule that we, we only check once a week, which is our way of making that kind of space. It's hard to, to stick to it, though. I got to admit, sometimes I'm like, oh, I wonder if anyone commented. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that's a great, great rule for you guys. I, I love that. You know, I feel very similarly um, with my own social media and advocacy that I get all these ideas and you kind of want to do them all at once. And that's exactly what I think I did when I wrote articles for the mighty, um, especially that's exactly what I did. I had all these ideas. I love to write. And so that was just Mm -hmm. my medium of, um, you know, I have this idea and I'm going to write about, about this. And then I'm going to write this story about myself. And um, yeah, it was, it's too much. I think when you do it too much, (laughs) I, I saw on your um, your WordPress blog, you there was a phrase um, you talked about uh, withdrawing, and you felt like guilty, um, guilty from withdrawing. And I, I think you said like people asked you to like repost, like you you took things down. Someone asked you to, yeah. like, oh, could you please post it back up? Um, yeah, do you want to 
yeah, t- talk about that guilt. Like it's yeah. This- so there was the one that sticks out in my mind, and I still feel so much guilt about it. Is there was an article I had on the Mighty, and I can't even remember which one it was because I haven't gone back to look. Um, obviously related to BFRBs, I believe, and. Um, it, or it could have been depression. There was a couple of depression ones I wrote and anxiety. Uh, regardless, uh, the point remains the same. After it was removed, um, I guess everyone is still able to go to the link and it must have said it was just removed or whatever. And a girl commented on it and basically said something along the lines of, you know, is there any way you can put this back up? You know, I really related to it. It was, you know, something that really gets me through every day and you know I read it Mm. a lot and that just really I had no idea that it was something that you know somebody could read something that I wrote and you know I understand people can be impacted by it and and feel you know they can relate to it but to hear something like that from somebody like please can you put this back so I can feel like I have something that I can actually you know hold on to and and really relate to to get me through the day is, you know, that's another level. And so I felt so guilty about it. And um, I still think about it. And I think that's part of what has motivated me to come back, knowing that there's an impact like that on certain people. You just might not even know it. Mm, Yeah, so true. And I was curious about your decision to remove the the traces Mm -hmm. of your contribution. I mean, it's one thing to decide to step away, but to actually – want to take things down? What was, what was your thinking behind the that? The main driver behind that, the main one was, cause of course, like you said, I could just step away. The main <laughs> motivation behind having it removed was actually in relation to my master's program, because I started um, my internship actually in a prison and you are warned. I don't know how much you guys know about prisons in in that sense. But when you work in a prison, um, especially clinically, you are usually forewarned that the inmates will look you up or have someone on the outside look you up, you know, to use things against you and things like that. Um, Not everybody, but it's just a warning you get. And I going in as an intern, you know, a master's level intern, I was like, Oh, God, like, I don't need them to have anything else, you know, to use against me. And it's not it's not the insecurity part. Like I don't, anyone can come up to me and and make fun of my hair or my skin or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm so many years past that there's really nothing anyone can say about that, that would bother me. But um, as a training level clinician, I just didn't, want that to become, you know, an argument they could use against me. Um, Mm. I wanted to be able to focus on my studies and not get into any sort of um, black hole, I feel like, because once that (laughs) opened up, I feel like that could just end badly. And I didn't want the attention turned towards me. I wanted it on, you know, it's supposed to be on them. So that was the main driver behind that, because everything's connected to my name, obviously. Um. That makes so much sense. And I feel differently now. I think a lot of people along the way in my academic uh, progression that I've heard, you know, people don't really, some people don't believe it's preferable to either have some sort of mental illness or be public about some sort of mental illness um, when you are a mental health professional. And that was another thing that has at times made me want to um, withdraw a bit. Yeah, that's a good point. I could see it being a strength in that if people can relate to you um, in some way, or it could maybe develop a level of trust, but then on the other side, it being used or taking attention away from the, the actual people that you're working with. Um, mm-hmm. That's an interesting balance. I hadn't thought about that. I, I sometimes wonder, you know, Jason, we kind of just decided that our names would be attached to Fidget we didn't really talk that much about it, but sometimes I wonder like, Oh, you know, one day when I have a portfolio is this podcast, something that I am going to use as, you know, like for, as part of my work portfolio, I don't know. Do I want people to specifically associate that with me in a professional setting or not? And it's, 
I think there are benefits to both and and downsides to both, honestly. <laughs> I was trying to turn my camera back on to help with the cues, but I think it actually just causes lag. So I don't know. Um, but I am really, I'm really curious. Um, the, the topic of motherhood and trichotillomania is something that I've thought a lot about, partially because some of my earliest memories of becoming aware of trick and how it impacted my parents were some comments that my mom made where she actually felt uh, really guilty because she thought maybe the reason I started pulling my eyelashes was because uh, sometimes when she was like, uh, I don't know, in the bathroom, like preparing to go to bed or whatever, she would sort of like pull the mascara off her eyelashes. And I remember her asking me when I was eight, is this why you do it? Like, is it because you saw me do that? And it wasn't, or maybe, you know, maybe in some way it influenced me. I don't, I have no idea at this point, but that level of feeling that, that responsibility for your child's behavior, I guess, is something that I think comes up once in a while. And I can imagine that being a challenge in my future, um, having kids and, and being worried about how I might influence them. So yeah, I'm really curious about what that's been like so far. I mean, have you, are there any surprises, I guess, in terms of being a mom with a BFRB? I think there's a lot. I mean, I remember when I was pregnant just as many times before in my life and like a lot of us where I think in my head, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do this at a certain point. Like I cannot do this after he's born. I never want him to see me doing it. Um, and of course, that's not a realistic way of thinking. And you would, you would almost think that since I first developed a BFRB when I was around seven years old, you would think I would know that by now, but I still put that pressure on myself and I'm still, you know, I'm like, okay, not doing it, you know, at this point because of whatever. And my biggest motivation in life so far was to not do it um, in front of my son who is now, he just turned nine months old and I mean, I do like he, <laughs> I can't say that he's definitely going to remember it, you know, many years from now. And, I, but he will like throughout his life. I mean, he's going to see me engage in BFRBs. It's kind of, you know, it's part of why it's a disorder is because it's not fully under our control. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's going to happen. And, and I do feel a lot of pressure and anxiety about it every time he touches his hair or um, pulls on his hair, just like he pulls on his ears or, you know, cause he's an infant, he's figuring out like what's on his head and what's in front of his mm-hmm. face and whatever. But every time he does that, I'm like, Oh my God, is it what, it, you know, is that's an early sign that he's going to pull his hair or is he doing that because he's copying me, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, really scary. Not because I would feel you know, I don't care whether he has hair or not, you know, of course not, but I don't want him to feel the same sort of pain and shame that I did about it. And I also really don't want to feel like he has it because of me. And obviously he would be getting it from my genetics and he would be getting it from mimicking my behavior. So that's something that scares me a lot. And we won't know, you know, for several years, probably if that's something that will ever develop for him. I, I saw on one of your Instagram posts, I think you reposted somebody else's, but it's like the the thought of, oh, I should be managing my trick better, like causes even more stress, right? And it just, yeah, that's that negative feedback loop. How, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, e- either of you guys, how do you feel like th- this idea of like guilty of not doing enough to manage, you know, your BFRB and how do you how do you step outside that loop? That is such, it's so cyclical, um, which I think you guys said in one of your episodes actually was, I think one of you described it as being cyclical and that's a great way to put it because, you know, you're on a daily basis trying not to engage in a BFRB basically. And then when you do, you feel terrible, but it's just, it's a really hard thing to get out of and, 
I can go into really depressive states about it and feel really down on myself. And I have to really motivate myself somehow. And it doesn't always come from me. It's not always this internal motivation that I'm able to get. Sometimes I have to do something like look at a motivational or positive post on Instagram or something like that. Um, Usually it takes more than that, but it's hard. I think everyone has their own things to kind of dig themselves out of that mindset. Um, But yeah, I haven't, as you can see, I haven't been that creative lately on Instagram. I've been seeing all these awesome posts from other people and um, you know, I'm all about boosting there are social media as well. So (laughs) I've just been reposting some really cool things that I've seen other people's ideas for things. And there's some great stuff out there. I'm really proud of how far this community has come. You've been a part of the community for a long time, right? Um, You said when you, even when you were seven, you, you went to TLC events. What was that like as a seven year old? (laughs) You know, the first one I went to was a one day workshop um, in Maryland, basically shortly after my parents had discovered that this was a disorder. And um, back in the day, you know, there was probably 50 people there in like one room. And Christina Pearson, who's the founder of the TLC Foundation for BFRBs, you know, at the time, it was just the Trichotillomania Learning Center, and it was just getting going. I don't remember anything about it, because I just thought of it as a time to go and play with other kids or whatever. And there wasn't a lot of other kids there. So I mostly hung out with, you know, the older teenagers. And, um, but I remember my parents told me later on, they walked away from that completely horrified because for some reason they went there thinking that it was going to be a quick fix and then leaving there, realizing this was a lifelong disorder with no cure at the moment. Um, So kind of, it was much more traumatizing for them than it was for me at that age. And yeah, I've been involved ever since me and uh, Christina Pearson, you know, I love her. She's, we talk (laughs) frequently still. She's like my godmother. I don't know how else to put it. She's wonderful. Uh She's, she's so, now you go to TLC conferences and, you know, there's, I mean, a couple of years ago, I gave one of the closing speeches and there was 500 attendees and there's, it grows every year. It's just, it's amazing. And it's, it's so awesome. It's, I wish I had that more as I was growing up, but I can't complain a lot because there's people who never even had any sort of community or realized that there was other people who do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I remember noticing. So I think probably when I was 13 or 14, and um, trichotillomania sort of became a, a bigger part of my life. And um, I remember looking into it, and I came across the TLC. Uh, it wasn't the foundation yet at that point, the learning center. And then I kind of like had followed my own path and saw a psychotherapist and did my own things and didn't really pay attention to it. And then just in the last couple years, I Googled it again, just out of curiosity. And the the community is, you're right, it has grown so much. And it's, you know, I kind of, to your question about guilt, Jason, I there's a part of me that thinks, you know, like, why didn't I try harder to connect with other people sooner? Um, why didn't I like contribute to this conversation considering that I had a, 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 g- a great family support and, and all of that, but, you know, try not to be hard on myself. But now it's like, Oh, I just really want to engage so much. And I had actually gotten tickets to go to the last conference before it was canceled uh, because of COVID. So, oh, you know, yeah. as soon as we're in back in person again, I really want to go, but also it's virtual this year, which means it's so much more accessible, which uh, probably is going to be a a hugely beneficial thing for, and hopefully reach a lot more people. So silver linings, right? Yeah. Blessing in disguise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What was it like to speak in front of that many people? Like, was that, can't imagine. (laughs) It was actually, it was so cool. Um, Leslie, who's been a part of uh, TLC for a really long time, she's, oh my gosh, I love her. I almost break down into tears every time I see her because she just has this 
this presence about her. And she asked me, I think the day before, she was like, do you want to do, you know, one of the speeches? And I was like, oh my God, yes. But then I went and I wrote this, I'm such a perfectionist. I, you know, I went right away to try to write the speech and my close friends that were there were like, you know, just, you know, you don't need that. Just throw it out. And that's exactly what I ended up doing. I almost missed my flight home uh, because of giving the speech, but um, I actually just did the speech on the spot and I think it went really great. And um, I wasn't even scared, honestly, because being around people in the TLC community is, it's a time when I feel most comfortable and most at home, honestly, because there's nobody in there that I'm afraid to walk out and and be myself in front of. And I think a lot of people feel that way among other Mm -hmm. people with BFRB. So um, it was wonderful. I think my favorite part about it was getting up there and being able to thank the people who contribute to TLC, like the doctors. Um, It's such an amazing community and so unique that you can go to events like conferences and be able to speak one-on-one and hang out with, you know, some of the leading uh, clinicians and researchers in this area of the field and, it's amazing. People don't really understand it when I describe it to them, you know, other Mm. people in in this field of psychology, my, my peers and everyone they're they're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I know. You know, I, I, I've spoken one-on-one and hung out with some of the leading doctors in this area. And, and so have a lot of people because they're that approachable and um, they're just amazing. Did you find that the, the practitioners who were there or researchers, did they mostly experience BFRBs or have personal connections to it? Or maybe they didn't talk about that. That's something I wonder about sometimes. Yeah. Not that from what, from the people I know of and what I know of them, I have to say no, actually. Mm, Okay. Um, Yeah. I think it's something they, they, People in psychology are often very empathetic people. And when they see a community in need, you know, they want to research that area more, serve that population more. And um, this this is definitely still one of those communities. And just out of curiosity, I think, you know, as, as mm-hmm. a sort of scientist, you know, you have that curiosity to see what's causing this and how can we treat it. Yeah. So cool. Um, I'm really excited about this. <laughs> um, I wanted to circle back. Um, you said your parents, when they first, um, you know, when you were seven, they were <laughs> a little horrified. Uh, how, how did that, how did their relationship with BFRB change over time? Oh, that's a really good question. My mother has always been the soft, compassionate person in my life um and it's kind of always been that way I think the only change for her would have been that as I became less anxious about my appearance and my my pulling she also became less anxious about it so it's she'll still try to make me aware when I'm doing it but it's not as much of um the panic mode, you know, is when I was an adolescent in school and I was getting bullied and I really hated myself and all that. Um, For my father, he's done a 180. Um, He was, I want to say his outward anger was a lot of uh, misunderstanding with himself and, and not knowing why he couldn't fix it for me or what he may have done to contribute to it. And I think that's just how he is as a person that, you know, that gets expressed through anger. So it was a lot of anger outbursts on his part. And over time, he really broke down. And um, I took him to, I got him to finally go to a conference one year. And that was amazing. He went to a dad support group and, It was great. I didn't think he would go. He's not, he's a very um, 
solitary, laid back, uh, old Italian guy, you know, and um, he's, I just didn't think he would involve himself in the community like that in that sense, even in that small way, just attending that, that group. And I think it was really beneficial for him. And over the years, he's really, there was a time he said to me, you know, I understand now because I have to. He said, I, I used to not understand, but uh, now I do because I have to. And he's much more gentle about it now. To be honest, we haven't talked about it in a long time, him and I. Um, but he doesn't put the pressure on me that he used to with it or the pressure I used to feel. I don't feel that anymore. I don't feel like he's looking to see where I am with it. I think we're just at peace with it. That's beautiful. Uh, and, and I guess like uh, the the extension of that question, I mean, so you're, uh, you started this Instagram, Facebook, Body Focus Mama, and you know, you yourself entering motherhood, like, is there um, like what, I don't know, like what aspects of, you know, the, of, of parenting, because obviously, you know, you, you become the parents modeled after, you know, kind of the parenting that you received. Are there, are there elements that you really want to highlight or uh, like remind yourself of, of like, this is what it means to be a parent. I don't know. Does that question make sense? Yeah. I want to, I think about, you know, the parent I want to be a lot. Um, I really want to be the parent who lets my child or children take the lead in terms of, their mental health in the sense that if something, for example, you know, say my son were to develop um, a BFRB, if he wasn't bothered by it in the sense that he looked at himself and he didn't see himself as, you know, ugly or, or a bad person or the things that I felt as a kid because of the societal expectations for a woman to have, you know, beautiful hair, you know, I wouldn't put extra pressure on him or I hope that I wouldn't put extra pressure on him to look a certain way. If he was not bothered by it, I want to be that parent that lets him take the lead and tell me, or if I notice a sign that he seems distressed by it, that's different, you know, then I would, I would want to help him with that, of course. But um, I don't want his appearance or any of my children's, you know, appearances to, you know, I don't want that to allow allow it to cause me anxiety if it doesn't cause them anxiety. And I want to be very transparent with them as I am with the, the BFRB community um, and supportive. And I want to forgive, or I'm sorry, I apologize to them, you know, when it, when I see myself make an error and how I respond to them. Do you have so with regard to the transparency piece, do you have a, a plan, I guess, of when, when or if you are planning to broach the subject and so this is what I experience and this is what it is? Or do you think that will just sort of happen organically and you'll let your child take the lead on that? I can't see myself ever sitting him down and... and telling him out of nowhere. I mean, I've never done that with anyone in my life. I don't think um, it's always kind of come from something. Mm-hmm. And I somehow there always just ends up being like the best time to roll into that conversation. Nice. Um, <laughs> if you ever ask something related to it, then, you know, we'll have that conversation. But I don't think I'm, you know, I'm not like excited to sit him down (laughs) and, you know, but I'm sure at one point he's going to be like, why do you sometimes have hair? And sometimes you don't, I mean, he sees me (laughs) even at, you know, nine months old, he sees me, um, without my hair. And then I put my hair on in the morning. Like I wear hair, a hair piece. So he, he sees me both ways. And until my hair goes out, if it does, then he'll continue to see me in that way. And for him that he'll grow up thinking that's, you know, normal. And I kind of like that. I kind of like mm-hmm. that he he'll see that from or think that at his baseline, you know, it's normal and fine for somebody to not have hair and or to wear hair 
um, um, and not think that it's anything out of the ordinary. That is really cool. <laughs> I mean, from experience. It's scary, but I can only imagine the things that are going to come out of his mouth later. <laughs> say things, you know, when kids go to school and they say things about their parents and in a way that you wouldn't really want them to say it. <laughs> I'm sure he's going to be like, well, my mom puts her eyebrows and her hair on in the morning. <laughs> that's sweet. Yeah. Well, I think that's why I asked the question because I think of the future and having kids and I think well I I don't know I would almost I think I'm much more of well and it's been obvious in the way that I've talked to people about it in the past is I I do plan to say it or at least I have you know kind of sit them down like I need to disclose this information and so I guess my fear is that if my child were to develop either BFRB or anything related to mental health and not know what it is and then not know how to talk about it or be afraid to bring it up. I, I guess that's why I, I'm actually kind of excited to be like, okay, so this is what I experience and, and there's nothing wrong with it. And, but it's important to talk about and that kind of thing um, to sort of set the stage. So yeah, it's interesting to think about different ways to approach it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's wonderful as a parent. Mm. I um I just read this book called uh, How to Pronounce Knife, and it's like a collection <laughs> of short stories. Um, I I don't know the author's name, um, but or, well, it's it's she's from Laos, and then she like grew up in a refugee camp, oh, wow. and comes to Canada, and uh, the 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 kind of the title short story is how to pronounce knife. So this little girl, this little Laos girl comes to Canada and she's like in kindergarten and she asks her dad how to pronounce this word. Like, I don't like this word knife. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it. And then he's like, Oh, it's knife. And then she's like, okay, thanks dad. And then she goes <laughs> to school and set and then finds the word and she says knife and some other like, kindergartner says that's wrong you don't pronounce the k it's knife and then the little girl gets in an argument and she goes to the principal office um, because she's like yelling no my dad says it's knife and then um later when she comes back uh to to the dinner table and her dad asks oh how did school go for you today she like doesn't tell her dad that um, she got sent to the principal's office for getting in an argument. And she also doesn't tell him that you don't pronounce the K. And she also doesn't tell him like, um, like things in Canada are different than when you were growing up in Laos. And uh, it's like a very kind of like heartbreaking story about um, like kids figuring things out that their parents don't know and mm. like, like the the kids have to be the adults in that situation, um, mm. and oh, that's brutal. But <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> um, I was hoping to a funny twist to that that story, but no, <laughs> no just heartbreaking. Sad. <laughs> but, but I think um, I, I mean, I also reflect on this of like, yeah, I I also want kids and thinking about how to sort of <laughs> disclose this information. And um, I'd, I'd like to think, you know, I'll get ahead, get out in front of it and be like, hey, you know, this is kind of what I've struggled with and I hope that's okay. And um, yeah, maybe it's like a, a vulnerable part of parenting of being like, you know, this is kind of how I am. Maybe it's a Chinese thing. I feel like, um, I feel like all my, what I know of my parents is they were very, I don't think they communicated that much down to me. Um, mm. And that's all like Sarah, when I asked you that question of like, what aspects of parenting do I want, want to keep versus change? I like, I kind of, that would be feedback. I would give my parents like be more open <laughs> about things. Cause I think my parents sheltered me a lot with, um, yeah, even we were talking last week and my mom, her, her sister is going through some health issues right now. And I, she didn't tell me about it. And it was my dad who told me. 
And then my mom's like, oh, why did you tell Jason this thing? And I'm like, it's okay, mom. I'm an adult. Like things happen. She's like, I just don't want you to worry about these things. And I'm like, uh, like that's, I don't, I don't know. I don't agree with that. But anyways. <laughs> yeah. My mom's the same way. Well, actually, both my parents are. They, you know, if something happens, they don't ever want to tell me at a time where I'm even mildly preoccupied. You know, when I was away at school for college and my master's program, someone was sick in my family and like that sort of situation they would totally wait until I came home for a vacation or something because, you know, they just don't still as an adult, they don't want me to, but they don't want to put any extra stress on me. And I think a lot of that is related to growing up with a BFRB and being really sensitive to Mm. um, stress and just any extra stimuli, to be honest. (laughs) But but I think it like, I, I think my parents treat me the same way. Um, like they think I'm like, you know, kind of hypersensitive. So they don't want to overburden me with extra stress, but it's sort of almost like ironic or like it's a self-fulfilling thing because without like exposing me, like toughening me up, I never sort of grow into that a bit or uh, like it's. Yeah. I think there's definitely an exposure level to it in a sense, you know, like, you have to be exposed to something to be able to overcome it to any sort of degree. So, and then it also, I think can make you feel a little bit inadequate with your own coping skills. Um, I feel that way sometimes kind of an mm. offended when someone feels that I can't um, handle some sort of information, you know, I'm like, I can cope with it. You just got to tell me and I'll deal with it. <laughs> Maybe that's just my ego. I don't know. <laughs> I've been through enough to know to like you trust yourself that you'll be able to 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 cope no matter the situation, even if to someone from the outside maybe they'll be worried or they might not understand exactly what's going through your mind, yeah. right? I mean it might just be like, you know, a, a quarter section of my hair, but you know, we'll get through it. <laughs> you know, yeah, we'll through it. <laughs> I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, looking back on on the exposure that I've had, I think probably the biggest stress factors in my life growing up were moving a lot. Like I moved a lot and the big moves in my life have correlated interestingly with some major trick moments. (laughs) And at the same time, I mean, I continue to make choices that cause me to move. Like I'm planning a move back to Europe soon and that's a major change. And I, it's almost like I, I trust that I'll be okay because I've done many moves and I know that there will be harder times, but I also know how my body reacts and I'm trying to do everything I can now to sort of prepare myself, but I know that there is going to be tougher moments. Right. And I think I may be reading into this a little bit, but I, I feel like, especially for my mom, sometimes when we talk about moves that have happened in the past, there's a little bit of a, a little bit of, you know, Oh, if we hadn't done that, then maybe you wouldn't have trick. I, I, not in those words, but I I get that feeling. A little bit and of I've, hindsight um, bias. Yeah, exactly. And I feel that way sometimes too. Thinking back to my teenage years, I'm like, oh. Or I, I especially felt this when I was um, like 17, 18. I'd be like, wow, if my parents hadn't made me move, then I wouldn't have to deal with all of this. But I mean, truthfully, probably other stressful factors would have happened that would have maybe triggered this or Maybe I would have coped in different ways. Who knows, really? But ultimately, I don't regret having experienced those things because now I can, I can experience them again, and, and I'll be okay. So yeah, there's, it's all okay. <laughs> the exposure is good. <laughs> Moral of the story: It's all okay. It's all okay. <laughs> yeah, I. I think similarly about that, especially with, you know, that hindsight bias, which I laugh because it's just, it can be such a horrible thing thinking, you know, well, if this didn't happen, then maybe I wouldn't have developed it. And my most occurring thought I think related to that is I start thinking about, oh, I wonder what I would look like. I wonder Mm -hmm. what I would look like if I never did any damage 
to my hair or um, how good my skin would be if I'd never done any damage to it, that sort of thing. So, and that can be a really, I mean, I don't think there's really much constructive about thinking that way mm-hmm. because it's just not reality and it's not who I am. I would be a much different person even if I had good hair and good skin that wasn't damaged by any BFRBs. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that I would have the perfect life. Mm. Yeah. I realize that sometimes when I think if I'm in a social environment, especially in a group, which hasn't happened in ages, when I would find myself in a group and feel I'm pretty introverted. And so I feel kind of out of place or a bit self-conscious. Then I go home and think, oh man, yeah, I don't have any eyelashes right now. Like if I had eyelashes, if I felt more confident in my appearance, then this would be so much better. But then like there's other days where I'll be in a group and I'm going through a really good patch of trick where I haven't pulled in weeks and I come home and I'm like yeah I still felt self-conscious but I have eyelashes so I can't blame it on that um and at a certain point there are elements of me that they're just me you know like I'm introverted and that's okay and it's I can't I can't attribute it to trick (laughs) yeah so it's real oh my gosh (laughs) that's it's so annoying though that's so relatable every time I do something like you said with a group of people and I want to look good you know I'm like damn it like why did I have to pull out my eyelashes or my eyebrows right before this event or before I go on vacation why did I have to pick the crap out of my skin at this current time why did I choose now and then you look back on it and you're like you know what whatever like this is just a whole cycle of my life and you know what I just I, I'm like, whatever. Sometimes I get so mad at myself, but it's just, it's just part of who we are. I always say it's not who I am, but it's a huge part of what has made me who I am. And there are many worse things that I could be doing to myself, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded of, uh, uh, Sarah, have you seen Hamilton? I haven't, but I listened to some true crime podcasters that have been talking about it. So now I kind of want to watch it. It's so good. Jason, I'm so glad you're bringing out Hamilton. I don't know what the connection is. Well, anyways, there's this one... There's this one song about how, uh, uh, I forget the exact words, but it's like, why do you write like you're running out of time? Adele, you know this Mm. song? Can you please sing all the lyrics for me, please? (laughs) No, it's like, um, um, so yeah, like Hamilton, main character guy, he gets obsessed with like defending the U.S. Constitution or something. And uh, yeah, the phrase is, why do you write like you're running out of time? And it's like the main character he's he's someone who'll like never be satisfied and that's like a <laughs> defining characteristic of what he is he's ambitious he, he's ambitious but with that comes a like unsatisfied yeah frenetic mm-hmm. again like right like you're running out of time and that's just like the the strength of the person is also like something yeah it's like he's killing himself doing it i don't know mm-hmm. uh, like it, it's damaging other parts of his life yeah for sure it's like your most successful trait but also your greatest demise in a sense like your greatest challenge to overcome i'm working on that with myself right now some of the things that could be seen as productive that i'm starting to realize are actually interfering with um some aspects of my life like having to have everything be perfect um, with like, say my writing. Um, If I get into a doctoral program and, you know, I can't, I don't, I won't have the time to make sure that everything is exactly perfect all the time. So I'm working Mm -hmm. on things like that with myself as I'm becoming more aware. But another thing that's totally relatable, (laughs) Hamilton, I never knew. (laughs) <laughs> yeah you should watch it related to bfr <laughs> uh, how um how yeah t- uh how has your um relationship with perfectionism changed maybe or what have you learned about perfectionism oh god i love it and i hate it so much i can't really 
wouldn't say that it's changed. I guess, <laughs> I guess, in the sense that it's, I guess, it's changed is that recently I've become much more self aware of it, um, and the behaviors that I might engage in that are linked to it. BFRBs are definitely one of them, especially with my skin. Um, you know, skin's not meant to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect, but I freak out if I find the smallest imperfection on my skin. Um, and same thing with my writing. I'm so such a perfectionist about my writing, any sort of writing, academic writing, or like a blog, the blog post that I did um, when I re-entered, you know, advocacy with the Body Focus Mama. I mean, I edited the crap out of that blog post. (laughs) And honestly, like, who cares? Like, most people aren't going to be like, well, I don't don't like where she put that comma. But for me, if I read it and I'm like, oh, oh, no, girl, I'm going back and I'm fixing that. that. (laughs) And that's just how I am with all the stuff in my life. And, And on one hand, like you were saying, with dear sir hamilton that i can relate to now you know on one (laughs) hand it's like that's great it can make you really successful it can be wonderful especially academically you know people really admire that but it can also be damaging and overwhelming and exhausting and you need to learn that not everything is going to be perfect and you have to do your best and move on and that's what i'm trying to work on every single day with everything that I'm doing, especially before if I get into a doctoral program, because that's mm. going to be a whole new level of stress. Mm. Um, something my dad taught me or um, would say is like, you know, Jason, um, 80% is good enough. Like the, the 90, the 95, like that's, it's not for you. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> like it, the teachers didn't expect you to get a hundred percent on this test. Like, you know, all he really wants is 80 or the, you know, the prof when they write the test, all they really care about is you getting to 80 and they just had to put in those few like bonus questions to separate (laughs) out the eighties from the nineties. And like, you don't need that. Like those aren't for you. And I'm like, that's, thanks. That's my new wow, favorite that's thing ever. Not 90, 95. That's not really for you. <laughs> for you. You don't need that. <laughs> I don't like that for you. <laughs> I don't think I've ever thought that about anything. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm totally saying that to my son one day. What a mind shift. <laughs> it's not a good look for you it's not for you it doesn't suit you well it doesn't go with your eyes 80 is good 80 looks good yeah. that 80 that's for you Jason. <laughs> that's so sweet like that I want that on my gravestone one day <laughs> that, that 90 to 95 was not for her she was at an 80 no yeah, yeah, yeah. 80 years yeah. Oh man. But I, I, I think it's like, it's, it's crazy. You know how like work projects, they kind of expand and shrink based on how much time you, you have available. Like, you know, if your prof, if she like gives you, Oh, you know, the homework due in a week, you're going to, you know, like not spend the whole week on it, but but if you only get a day, like, okay, you know, you'll be stressed, but at the end, you, you, you'll submit it and it'll be fine. And that's what I do every time. I don't know what it is. You wait till the last minute. Are you a procrastinator? I mean, I'm not. That, that's the thing, though. I don't really see myself necessarily as a procrastinator. I think I work my best and I'm the most focused under a little bit of pressure. So I'm not mm-hmm. I'm typically not going to start an assignment, you know, like an hour beforehand, but... <laughs> I'm not, you know, if you give me a month, I'm going to do, you know, like two days. Mm. (laughs) So if you give me a week, it's going to be, you know, maybe the, probably the day before. Of course, depending on what the assignment is and how much I need to put into it as far as, you know, research or citing things or whatever the project is. But 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't. I feel like I don't do it on purpose. It just ha- I, I'm saying it just happens. You know, for 25 <laughs> years, that has just happened. And I say it like I say it like it happens to me, and I'm completely the one doing it. Yeah, you do it to yourself. <gasps> I'm like, can you believe this has been happening for 25 years? <laughs> That's really interesting because I don't know how you can oh, be a perfectionist and also procrastinate because that would freak me out a lot. That's what my my best friend from my master's program used to say. They're like they're still mind blown by it. They joke about it all the time. So they're like I don't I don't understand. They're like how can you be such a good writer and you start things you know a couple hours. I used to write our papers, you know, right before we walked into class. You know, the the ones that weren't major ones. And it's just the way my brain works. It's probably somewhere you could diagnose me in other areas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually think that's a really, that might be a really helpful thing for me. Because I, I see my perfectionism applied in how I plan things. So the amount of time I spend planning to make sure that I do the thing perfectly, <laughs> um, also like sort of takes my takes up my attention and then I start worrying about whether I've planned enough time to do the thing <laughs> and so it, it that actually becomes a trigger uh, at work like when I'm because I'm a project manager and sometimes I'm just like creating a calendar for the term and I start pulling my hair because I'm stressing about the fact that maybe I didn't plan enough time to actually do the things that I will have to do eventually and it's just I guess sometimes having too much time to do these things can be detrimental perhaps because Mm -hmm. I actually have time to think about it more than I maybe need to or more than I should. And um, a couple of days ago I had to submit, it was my final master because I'm planning to do my master's and um, it was my final master's application. And I thought I had done everything and I was, and I was waiting for a final reference letter and then, it's due on Sunday. So Sunday morning, I'm like, okay, I got the reference letter, putting everything together. And then I go to submit it. And there's a whole other online application form that has like four more questions, oh. 300 words each. And I have to meet my friends at noon. And I really didn't oh. want to cancel that. So all of a sudden, I had this time pressure. And I already know all the answers to these questions, because they're about what my goals in life are, and what my skills are, whatever. And I actually did pretty good in in writing this you know I wrote a first draft in about an hour and a half which probably I would have spent like a day on each question maybe not a full day but like I probably could have spent one to two hours on each question if I had allocated the time and I don't know that it would have been that much better or even worth my time in hindsight so you know maybe Mm. it's a good thing sometimes (laughs) yeah no I totally relate I love planning things and I love making lists for a lot of things. And, you know, I might plan a paper. I would love to come up with like paper ideas, you know, for a research project, you know, things that are due at the end of the semester. I'm like, Oh, I could do this. I could do that. But am I actually going to work on it? No, (laughs) absolutely not. (laughs) I don't know what it is. I've just always done better under a little bit of pressure. Not a lot of pressure has to be like Mm -hmm. just the right amount. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just feather feather it. Yeah, <laughs> feather on my back. Just I have a question about that about writing specifically and I asked Cheyenne last time we um for our last guest who's an artist and I was wondering about whether she she well she has derm so whether she picks her skin while she's creating art do you find that derm or trick actually is with you when you're writing or not? Definitely. Yeah. Writing, um, you know, to be honest with you, and this is not a fun answer, but I think anytime I have can physically access my head or basically any part of my body, I guess, I guess trick is with me. So I I mean, for me, I think it started a lot when I was younger, when, I mean, my number one trigger is when I can't sleep. Um, Mm. Other than that, when I was a kid, I remember doing it a lot when I was reading for school. So looking back on it, I'm really amazed that I've I've been as academically successful as I have been because I would pull and zone out and, you know, have to 
read something over and over and over again because I just go in that dissociative state. And mm-hmm. same thing when I'm writing, you know, when I'm typing something or whatever. Um, I think it it can be very interwoven into the creative process. And that's sometimes really difficult and obnoxious because of course you don't, you don't want it. Um, But if it's contributing also to something that you enjoy, like art um, or writing, then, you know, sometimes it can just be really hard to separate them. Yeah. I really relate to that. I remember several times like reading a book and I'm pulling my eyelashes at the same time. So I can't actually read. Like I, I pretend like I'm reading and then I'm pulling my eyelashes. And then I realized that I couldn't see because I was pulling my eyelashes and I have to go back and read the page again. It's like, this is so counterproductive. <laughs> but I know sometimes you just in that trance. It's, oh, I know it's rough. Yeah. It's rough. Yeah. But I, I guess when you get to a, a certain point where the rhythm is you can write, it's not impeding your ability to write. It's That's why I said, is it with you? That's sort of how I feel when I'm working sometimes. And it's like trick is if I'm like pulling my hair kind of in an ongoing way as I'm working away at something, it's not what I would like to be doing. But I also understand that this is how my body is. This is how I'm releasing some form of energy or stress or whatever it is, tension, um, as I work through this thing. And so if I can, you know, replace it with something else and if that works that day, then that's great. But if I can't, I, I need to do it for some reason. So, yeah. I actually love the way you describe that. I think that's a really compassionate way of, uh, depicting that feeling. I know exactly what you're talking about and, and I would say, yeah, it definitely is with me um, getting through a lot of different tasks. It's with me. It's got. It's helped me get through the most basic tasks during the day sometimes and um, ones that require much more focus and effort as well. And that's why I think a lot of people don't understand the love-hate relationship with BFRBs. You love it because you can rely on it to help self-regulate in a way that's really hard for other people to understand because it's, you know, really an internal uh, mechanism, but you also obviously hate it for the long-term consequences. And it's a delicate balance, I guess. Yeah. It's a toxic relationship. Is what it is. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not the best. <laughs> mm. Okay. Wow. Um, maybe, maybe that's our episode, Sarah, we try to keep them, uh, to an hour because of Adele's dad. <laughs> because of oh. <laughs> My dad doesn't like it when they're too long. <laughs> that's um, I'm so sorry. Adele's no, dad. no, we're good. We're right on schedule. No, no, no. Yeah, okay. that's why. That's why we're wrapping it up. Um, <laughs> our really awkward segments will probably be more around an hour. It's true. That's it's true. true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay well thank you so much sarah for for coming on chatting with us reaching out um i think uh, maybe to close a a new kind of segment idea that me and adele have is like a uh sarah do you have like a go-to fidget toy or some sort of non bfrb Mm. thing that you um fiddle with I haven't used them in a long time, actually. My f- my old favorite one was, um, you know, those pencil grippers that are squishy, like they're erasers, but they no stick on. the um, the ones that kids put on pencils that are you like hold them with. Yeah. Oh, like, oh yeah, yeah. Pencil grippers. They're like trying. I don't know. I love anything that's squishy. <laughs> is my go to sort of fidget thing, and I have some of those at home, and I love those. Those are totally my go to. Nice. So I can't show it to you at the moment because I don't have it. But <laughs> we I'm believe you. Unprepared. <laughs> this is gonna be a new requirement. <laughs> I'm that person that will be. I'll have all my fidget toys and like any sort of resource sitting right next to me as I'm just pulling away. Like my mom would <laughs> to be like, um, "Can you just like try to do something else?" <laughs> <laughs> it's hard though. It doesn't feel the same. 
No, it no. doesn't. It no. doesn't. I am <laughs> I'm sort of related to that. I started getting or I went on a fidget toy spending spree. You may have noticed on Instagram. I got yeah, really excited. And it's actually I don't know if this is a problem or not, but I found a few of them that have the little like um, hairs, like they're squishy and elastic kind of silicone. And yeah, I really like those, but I think part of it is because I can pull on them and it almost like if I actually pull it off the fidget toy, it has a very similar like emotional sensation of I pulled it off, but I feel like that's just reinforcing some of the behaviors that I maybe don't want to be reinforcing so yeah i don't know slippery slope (laughs) yeah there's conflicting opinions on that clinically so far as far as i know you know some people are like oh it's great you're not actually doing the damage to yourself but Mm -hmm. you know like harm reduction but at the same time are you really learning to replace that behavior effectively but you know we do the best we can yeah it's a gateway (laughs) fidget toy we get We're, to trying. Other- <laughs> <laughs> We're trying. <laughs> We're trying. So <gasps> um, okay. okay. On that note, um, if you, if you, anybody wants to reach out, you can follow us on Instagram, which is fidget podcast at fidget podcast. And our email is fidget podcast at gmail.com. Um, we want to thank, uh, Cheyenne, our illustrator, who made our beautiful logo, as well as thanks to Thomas, who made our intro outro music. Um, and else, do you have anything else to say? <laughs> no, you said it all. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, well, until next time, thanks. Yeah, let us know if you have ideas. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> oh my goodness Adele this wasn't our smoothest episode yeah next time we have to split it up because otherwise I'm like yeah, okay. I just I'm repeat sorry. things that you've already said and then I feel dumb so. um, oh, I wish everyone could see it live like seeing it on the video <laughs>